I'm TL, and I'll be your host for the next hour. Each week at Mass, we say those words, I believe. But our belief has implications on the way we live our life the rest of the week. We explore those implications together, right here on Outside the Walls. It should come as no surprise that the topics of this show are generally the ones that jump out at me and that are, are very interesting to me. Uh, and and by virtue of that, I'm going to assume that I'm not the only person in the world who finds these things fascinating. So I want to invite you into these conversations. Most of the time, I like to look at what are the implications of our faith? We say we believe something. How does that play out? What impact or effect does that have on the way we live out our life? But today I want to go the opposite direction. Our faith has to be founded on something, right? We believe a certain way because of the factors that precede that belief. And one of the, the key ways that our faith is formed is through the scriptures and how they are proclaimed to us and how we interpret them. And so how we look at a specific passage or at a, at a an idea that comes from the scriptures and how we parse that out is going to affect what we believe about God and about the world and how we live in the world in no small measure. For this reason, way back in March, we talked with Dr. John Bergsma about a book that he and a co-author wrote called uh, A Catholic Introduction to the Bible, the Old Testament. And what that book does is it grabs a lot of different streams of scholarship and puts them together and examines the, the books of the Old Testament uh, in that light, in a really comprehensive way, uh, looking not only at uh, the critical methods, historical crit criticism, textual criticism, uh, but also tying those together with the best theological scholarship. Well, a few weeks ago, a new book came across my newsfeed that I'm very excited about because it, it uses an equal measure of scholarly rigor uh, to explore the question of Paul. Who is Paul? And by that fact, how are we to understand him? And Paul is one of the probably the most argued over figures in, in Scripture, apart from Christ himself, in no small part because he's one of the most prolific authors in Scripture. Uh, but beyond that, he tends to be one of the ones who's quite controversial because uh, he's showing us that a life in Christ is a life that is separate from the culture that surrounds us. Uh, we're in the culture, but we are, and Christianity has always been, countercultural. And so a lot of our theology comes from the writings of Paul, and by that virtue, the differences in the theology that we see around, uh, around Christendom come from, I think, in large part, differences in how we understand who Paul is. So today we're going to be talking with Dr. Michael Barber. Uh, he's the, the Associate Professor of Theology and Scripture at the Augustine Institute in Denver, Colorado. And he's got a new book that he co-authored with Dr. Brant Petrie and Dr. John Kincaid called Paul, A New Covenant Jew, Rethinking Pauline Theology. It's available on Erdman's Press, and we're going to dive deep into that uh, later here in the show today. We Catholics have the reputation that, uh, that we don't really know Scripture very well. Uh, it becomes kind of a joke. We say, well, I, I know it says it in there somewhere, but, you know, I'm, I'm Catholic. I don't know where it is. And there are a number of reasons that go into this. 
But part of it is the uh, the understanding that we have to interpret Scripture with the church uh, to, the, to the point that some have taken it to say that, oh, well, no one should really read the Scripture or interpret the Scripture, uh, and we should just receive it from the church because otherwise we might go off in the weeds. And uh, this is an overreaction. And perhaps it's a, a course correction or a pendulum swing from a time in the uh, the 19th and 20th centuries where you see this huge explosion of new interpretations that are widely divergent from those that came before them. And so people look at this and say, oh gosh, you know, I don't know if I'm equipped. But the truth is that the Catechism gives us a number of things to think about when we are reading and interpreting Scripture. And I think as long as we do this with uh, with docility and humility and seeking out what is it that the church has always believed about this, uh, that we find ourselves on more stable ground. The Catechism, quoting De Verbum, uh, says this, Of course, it, all that has been said about the manner of interpreting Scripture is ultimately subject to the judgment of the church, which exercises the divinely conferred commission and ministry of watching over and interpreting the Word of God. And this doesn't mean that only the church can interpret. It means that she is first and foremost responsible for the interpretation. But in the same way, uh, the bishops of the world uh, share in the charism of infallibility with the Pope when, it says, when they teach in union with the Pope. And so what we look at here is that we come and we approach Scripture even to the, the point of interpreting Scripture. And we do so safely when we do so uh, within the bounds of and in unity with the church. And this doesn't mean that there's this monolithic understanding of every single passage. Uh, there are some things that the church interprets in a very particular way, and, and we do best when we line up with that. But there's still so much to learn and so much to, uh, to explore and to plumb the depths of uh, that there can be maybe a difference of understanding or opinion so long as it uh, is within the framework uh, of what the church has has always believed, right? And so we do that safely in a number of ways. One is by reading the fathers and reading commentaries that have come before us uh, through the ages of scholarship. Uh, this, I think, is so valuable. It's one of the reasons that each week we hear a reading from church history, because I think that that ought to be part of our diet. What is it that the church has said about this throughout time, uh, not only 20 years ago or 100 years ago, but 1,000 years ago and 1,500 years ago? How has the church understood Scripture in the past? And then that informs how we understand Scripture today, which impacts our belief, which impacts our life. We're going to be digging into this when we come back as we talk with Dr. Michael Barber about his new book, Paul, a New Covenant Jew, Rethinking Pauline Theology. Join the ongoing conversation over at facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. There's so much more to come. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. 
I'm your host, TL, and today we have the great privilege of sitting down and talking uh, with Dr. Michael Barber. He's the Associate Professor of Theology and Scripture at the Augustine Institute in Denver, Colorado, and has recently written a new book with uh, with a couple of others, with um, Dr. Brant Petrie and John Kincaid, called Paul, A New Covenant Jew, Rethinking Pauline Theology. Uh, one of the things, Dr. Barber, that I've, I've seen often is an attempt to separate out our study of Scripture from the study of theology, as somehow mm. maybe we think them uh, loosely connected, but sufficient to look at one without the other. So talk a little bit. You you are the professor of theology <laughs> and Scripture. Talk about the right. correlation between that. Well, one of the things that the Second Vatican Council underscored uh, is that the soul of sacred theology should be, quote-unquote, the study of the sacred page. That's in the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation known as Dei Verbum. Uh, that the study of sacred scripture needs to be the soul of theology. It's not just enough to you know, cherry-pick some Bible passages and you know, sprinkle in some scripture quotations in, in your theological investigation. No, the study, investigating, uh, sacred scripture, carefully reading it, uh, interpreting it. This is the heart of theology. And in fact, you know, if you look at uh, Thomas Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas considered probably the uh, most significant doctor of the church in the Catholic tradition. Uh, my friends here who are Augustinians might say, no, Augustine. Okay, well, uh, at least there's a, you know, uh, well, not a triple-A, but a double-A club, right? Augustine and Aquinas. Uh, if you were to ask Aquinas uh, how he did theology uh, and in some way imply that there was a division between Scripture and theology in that, he would have looked like, he would have looked at you like you had two heads, mm-hmm. right? Because his official job, Thomas Aquinas' official job, the great theologian in church history, uh, was to be a lecturer in Scripture, Mm-hmm. He, he didn't actually teach courses, He did maybe rarely, but his primary job was not to teach courses in philosophy. Mm-hmm. It was not to teach courses in, you know, eschatology or something like that. That term would have even been foreign to him. Uh, they didn't use those terms. In fact, if you read the beginning of his Summa, as a, Dr. Chris Baglow points out in a great article, you, uh, you, you you'll discover that Thomas equates... Sacra pagina, that is the sacred page, with sacra doctrina, right? Theology. Basically interchangeable terms right. for Aquinas. To do theology is to study sacred scripture in the Catholic tradition. So yeah, it's 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 a challenge for us today because I think a lot of people have driven a wedge between scripture and theology in a way that is actually artificial to to Catholic tradition. Uh, if you if you look at Aquinas, I mean, he he wrote commentaries on Matthew, on John, on Isaiah, Job, the Psalms. He didn't quite finish the Psalms commentary, but all the letters of Paul, you know, um, he he was writing commentaries on Scripture because he was teaching from sacred Scripture. He was a, um, a you know a, a magister, a teacher of the sacred page, yeah. a master of the sacred page. So I think it's really important for us today because uh, I think a lot of people want to uh, detach theology from Scripture. 
And uh, not only is that, you know, contrary to our tradition, but it also sets you up for some some really dangerous pitfalls, right? Yeah. Because at that point, then, well, what are you theologizing about, you know? And, um, I, you know, I, I love the writings of Aquinas. I love the writings of Augustine. I, I, I thoroughly enjoy reading Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory of Nazianzus, Irenaeus, but you can never read their writings at Mass. Right. It can never be read instead of the Bible, mm-hmm. ever, right? That, that it's not permitted. We read sacred scripture yeah. in, in the liturgy because scripture is the word of God in a unique way. Yeah. Um, very you know, important. Speaking of those fathers, they approach scripture in a different way than maybe modern man does because they're looking at, you know, we, and the catechism talks and instructs us on this, about reading scripture in the four senses and looking mm. at the very literal, literal sense, but also looking at the, uh, the anagogical sense and to look at what, what thing, what it points to in the end and also what it, what are the spiritual implications uh, that may come out of this. Uh, but one of those that I think sometimes we miss is in the literal sense that scripture is not primarily some abstract philosophical book. It's a book that, while timeless, is specifically right. set in a time and a culture, and right. and that time and culture have implications on the word choice and what that means to us. Right. Uh, and this is an, it's an essential part of Christian faith, right? At the heart of our faith is the incarnation, mm-hmm. that God entered into human history in, in the person of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And when we look at who Jesus is, we recognize certainly the divine element, but it would be heretical. It would be seriously um, distorted to look at Jesus as divine and not as human, right. right? And there's a certain parallel that the church has always recognized, going all the way back to origin, by the way, uh, that the word incarnate um, bears a certain resemblance to the word inspired. And what we have in sacred scripture uh, also involves both a divine element and a human element. And, you know, one of the problems that we have in, in maybe the history of interpretation is that, is that balance needs to be struck between those two. And, uh, and sometimes people will want to overemphasize the, you know, the divine element in scripture and ignore um, this is, been you know a problem that I think the church has been seeking to address in more recent times, but it, the Bible comes to us through particular writers and particular circumstances. The Second Vatican Council underscores this, right? So to make sense of what is said, you have to take history into account, and this is why historical criticism, historical analysis, Pope Benedict XVI, he would say indispensable it's right. indispensable right and you know it really comes alive when you look at it in its historical context as well mm. and we're going to dig into this a little bit more as we talk about paul which is the subject of your new book dr robert right. as you're talking about this i uh, i'm a father uh, I, I know that you're a father as well i i have this picture that sometimes we approach the scriptures like uh the popular children's book amelia bedelia Right. Ah. We hear we hear the words of scripture and we assume 
that we know pr- precisely what the author meant right. by that word or what the translator right. is trying to convey with that word. And so then we run with it and, you know, it's like, uh, you know, steal the bases, Amelia Bedelia. And she goes and she picks up all the bases around the thing and runs right. away with them. Uh, and I, I feel that sometimes as we uh, come to approach the scripture, maybe we do so unprepared. Uh, right. And so miss out on the, the, the interpretive tradition of the magisterium and all that we could be getting out of scripture simply That's because right. of approaching it incorrectly. That's correct. Yep. There's no doubt about it. And so reading scripture within its proper historical context entails recognizing that there are expressions, for example, there are modes of thought that uh, ancient writers use that we, we don't use today. Right. So for example, just one instance of this, is uh, that ancient writers would work as sort of literary artists, right? Where um, today the principle for journalists, the principle most people are taught when they write is the KISS principle. Right. Keep it simple, stupid, right? Um, say what it is you want to say, say it, and then restate what you said. But if you read ancient literature, you'll see that they were a lot more poetic in the way that they would often express themselves. And so you'll have within texts literary structures where you have repetition, where you know a point is made, and then another point is made, and then there's a central idea, and then another point that corresponds to that second point, and then finally the last point forms an inclusio with you know, kind of an inclusion uh, with what was said originally. Okay, this is the way ancient writers thought. It's the way they, they worked. And if you're not aware of that, you can read the Bible and think, boy, this is getting really repetitive. Well, yeah, pay attention to the literary structure there. It's really significant, right? So, Well, and you know, some ancient authors were better at this than others. Paul, sure. who we're going to be talking about, was a master of this repetition, so much so that even Peter said, yeah, Paul's letters are kind of hard to understand. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that it was just repetition that caused Peter to say that. Or, you know, it's... Yeah, it, that, that's amazing. So in Second Peter, as you mentioned, we have a letter that's attributed to Peter where the author says that there are many things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. And he goes on to explain that, that Paul's letters are often twisted and, uh, and his art, Paul's arguments are misunderstood, misrepresented. It's a good thing we don't have that problem anymore, <laughs> right? It's an ongoing issue, but it's remarkable that, that this is happening. And then that passage from Second Peter concludes, as they do, as they twist, as they misunderstand the other scriptures. Right. And uh, that's a, it's a remarkable passage. It's not clear to me necessarily that uh, Second Peter is saying that the letters of Paul are scripture, uh, but uh, certainly he's explaining that just like scripture is misinterpreted, Paul is misinterpreted too, which would definitely indicate that Paul's letters, even this very early period, are recognized as both somehow authoritative mm-hmm. and confusing, right? It's a remarkable thing. It's funny, at the beginning of our book, we, we point out a, a, a little story that probably is of no historical value. It's a, it's a late story. But it, it gives us the account of someone who first met Paul for the first time. And uh, what's charming about the story is that we have a depiction of what St. Paul looked like, mm-hmm. right? So there's a description of his facial features. And it, it doesn't seem all that flattering, 
scholars debate whether it's intended to be flattering or not, but I don't think people reading it today, uh, reading about his, you know, his, his, his nose and the shape of his nose and these kinds of things. I don't think people would read this and say, wow, he's a really handsome guy. You know? <laughs> uh, but what's, what, what's really interesting about that passage is that um, we're told there that he sometimes looked like a man and he sometimes looked like an angel. Hmm. Depending on the lighting, depending on the circumstance, his appearance could vary. And, you know, I think that's indicative of a lot of interpreters of Paul. Yeah. A lot of people don't know what to make of him, right? And uh, at, at the heart of all the different theological debates, or at least m- most of them in the history of the church, has been the question of how do you interpret how do you interpret the apostle? What do we Paul? do with this guy? Yeah. Right. And, and so much, because he was such a prolific writer, so much of our theology— yeah. mm-hmm comes out of the things that he said. So it's so important that we have a, a good, solid understanding of who he was and what he was trying to say, sure. because that's right. going to have lasting ripples and an impact on the way that we uh, hold our belief today. That's right. We're talking today with Dr. Michael Barber, Associate Professor of Theology and Scripture at the Augustan Institute in Denver. We're going to talk more about how we should view Paul in just a moment. But if you like this conversation and you want to dig deeper, maybe you should look at the Augustine Institute where they have classes where you can sit under Dr. Barber uh, over and over again and glean from his wisdom. You can find out more information at augustineinstitute.org. We'll be right back right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL, and we're talking today about Paul specifically, but also through that context, how important it is to approach Scripture on Scripture's terms and not approaching Scripture on our terms. Uh, the, the, the term that's used theologically is exegesis versus eisegesis. We want the text to read into us. We don't want to read uh, us into scripture and to look at the, try to impose on scripture, our modern uh, cultures, our modern understandings of things, but rather let the scripture soak into us and and change us from within. To explore this a little bit more deeply, we're talking with Dr. Michael Barber, an associate professor of theology and scripture at the Augustine Institute in Denver, Colorado. If you have always wanted to dig deeper into scripture, then the Augustine Institute has a program that will help you do that. Uh, at the popular level, they've got the formed platform that many parishes have already purchased for their parishioners that has a number of Bible studies and series put on by some fantastic scholars to help you grow in your faith and understanding of Scripture. But if you want to go a little bit deeper, there are uh, graduate programs, academic programs that you can attend at the Augustine Institute. And even if you're unable to travel, uh, there are a number of distance learning opportunities for many of their degree programs. So I encourage you to go take a look at it over at augustineinstitute.org. Dr. Barber, thank you for joining us from Colorado. Lots of great things about being in Denver as I'm discovering I moved here recently. And, uh, There's also a fantastic coffee shop, right? As you come in the door, you've got oh my. Tola Legge. Now you know your stuff. Yeah, we have, a, we have a remarkable coffee shop run by Augustine Institute yep. staff. And if you check it out on Yelp, 
<laughs> they were the top rated coffee shop in, in the area. So uh, we get lots of customers here who don't know anything about the Augustan Institute or who are Catholic or anything like that. Uh, you're right there at the base of the Rockies. There's so much beneficial that's going on right there at the Augustan Institute, not the least of which is the new book that you have written with Dr. Brant Petrie and John Kincaid called Paul, A New Covenant Jew. It's available on Erdman's Press, erdmans.com. In the last segment, we were talking a little bit specifically about how important it is to understand the context around Paul and who Paul was in that scenario. And you've written a new book that's excessively academic in its nature, uh, that's exploring Pauline theology as you understand who he was culturally. So talk to us a little bit about what you came to discover, maybe that was even a surprise to you as you were working on this book. Well, this was a lot of fun to work on. It's a book we've been working on for a few years now. This is a book, you know, that give you a good overview of uh, some of the big debates that are going on in contemporary Pauline studies. And, uh, and we're trying to sort of shed a, a perspective on some of these debates that is a, a Catholic perspective, right, that shows us how reading the text in light of our particular tradition be very helpful. And one of the big things that uh, we want to underscore is the Catholic tradition emphasizes sort of both-and approach. Mm-hmm. One of the problems that you see in a lot of Pauline debates is People want to insist, well, Paul either is this or he is that, or he means this or he means that. And and one of the things that sort of emerged in, in the process of writing this book for us, that a lot of times these are false choices. Right. So one of the big things that we want to look at in the book is uh, the question of what kind of Jew was St. Paul? Mm-hmm. The book is called Paul, a New Covenant Jew. And, and this is an important issue. Um, it's an important issue, especially after the Holocaust, right? Where you know we, we, we recognize how how powerful and how destructive um, anti-Semitic have been, and uh, and how real uh, re- how real they are. One of the amazing things you go back and you read, you know, scholarship from the 19th century, 20th century, and, and you find. Um, sort of deep-seated anti-Semitism there. Um, and so we, we wanted to sort of be very, John Paul II talked quite a bit about the need to uh, restore relationships with our, our Jewish brothers and sisters, Jewish friends. And um, so in, in working on this book, this became a, a very important goal for us. One of the big debates is what do you do with, with Paul? You know, because in the past, typically people will, will, will talk about the way Paul used to be a Jew, right? He was a Jew, and then he converted, and he became a Christian. Hmm. And in so doing, ceased being Jewish. And, uh, you know, this is something that's out there. It's something that's in, in, in literature, in scholarly literature, especially older scholarly literature. still around, though. And... Uh, more and more scholars are recognizing that Paul isn't just to be understood against the Jewish backdrop. It's not just that, you know, Paul once was a Jew and then he renounced all of his Jewish ways. Paul continues to be a Jew in Galatians. When he's talking with Peter, he says, we Jews. (laughs) He doesn't say, you know, I once was a Jew, but you know, back in those days, right? So how do we understand Paul as a Jew and as a Christ believer, Mm -hmm. right? How does that work? And and one of the things that became very important in our research and in our study of this is the idea of the new covenant. 
for St. Paul. You know, every time we come to Mass as Catholics, right. we hear that language of new covenant. Right? Jesus used it over the cup at the Last Supper. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Right? And you find that actually in the writings of mm-hmm. St. Paul. It's in First Corinthians. And I would think, Dr. Barber, that as a Jewish person, Paul would not have seen New Covenant as somehow a break with his identity because there had been several New Covenants. There was the covenant with Abraham and the covenant with right. Noah and the covenant with David, and now there right. is the New Covenant, which for him would have been a, a moment of continuity and not a moment of break. Right. So it's continuity and discontinuity, right? Because this language of New Covenant that Jesus uses at the Last Supper that Paul uses in his letters, especially in his report of Jesus's words at the Last Supper. It's really amazing that we find that in Paul, right? It's the only event from the life of Christ, other than the crucifixion, that Paul talks about. It's the Last Supper. That's it. Never talks about the transfiguration, never talks about uh, the feeding of the 5,000, the only miracle that you find in all four of the Gospels from Jesus's public ministry. Never hear him talk about how Jesus raised the paralytic or uh, how he walked on the Sea of Galilee. Mm-hmm. The only thing that Paul mentions from the life of Christ is the institution of the Eucharist in 1 Corinthians 11. Mm-hmm. That's really remarkable. Yeah. And, and in fact, Paul uses that terminology, New Covenant, not just there, but he picks it up again in his second letter to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And, and there it's very clear that when Paul's talking about the new covenant, he's talking about that which is written on hearts, mm-hmm. not just on tablets of stone. And when Paul uses that language, scholars universally recognize he's drawing on an Old Testament prophecy. Uh, he's drawing on a, a prophet uh, named Jeremiah. Mm-hmm. Jeremiah announced the coming of a new covenant, right? This likely stands in the background of Jesus's language at the Last Supper, and it's certainly there in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. No doubt about it. And virtually all scholars agree on this. But when you go back to Jeremiah 31, what's really interesting is you get this element of discontinuity and continuity, right? Because in one sense, Jeremiah is saying, all right, this is all part of God's plan. In the future, there's going to be a new covenant. God's going to write his law on, on your hearts. But... He also says that the covenant that God will make in those days will, quote, not be like the covenant I made with your fathers at Sinai. Mm-hmm. So this is interesting, right? Because for a long time, people have recognized that there are discontinuous elements of Paul with Judaism, right? That's why they say, oh, he's a, he's a convert. He, he left Judaism. But at the same time, you don't want to push that too hard because certainly you know, that's what Marcion does, right. right? The heretic, right? Who says, well, we throw out the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament isn't the same as the God of the New Covenant. Right? Uh, that, that's clearly rejected in our tradition. Right? And certainly Paul is referencing Israel's story. He's citing the scriptures of Israel. Paul still sees himself as a Jew. Mm-hmm. So how do we explain how Paul is Jewish and not Jew, not like other Jews, of his day at the same time. And I think the key way to get at that is looking at this idea of the new covenant, mm-hmm. right? That Paul is um, announcing that what Jeremiah had announced long ago has now been realized in the coming of Jesus Christ. And so Paul 
he is a Jew, he's a new covenant Jew. And there's actually some parallels. There's some analogs to understanding this, right? Because there are there are other Jews in Paul's day that were anticipating or looking forward to or had thought that it had already arrived, the new covenant, right? We're thinking in particular about the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? The great archaeological discovery that we made in the early part, middle part of the 20th century, uh, where we have evidence of Jews in the first century who were seeking to enter into that which Jeremiah announced, that new covenant. And they rejected the temple establishment of its day. They thought that the high priest had become corrupt. And uh, they basically saw themselves as the fulfillment of these prophecies of Jeremiah. So to, to see Paul in these terms of, you know, a sort of a radical Jew, right? A Jew who who would have distinctive beliefs, but still remain a Jew, right? right? Uh, has precedent in the Dead Sea community. So it's fascinating. Yeah. And it's really helpful, I think, to think about. Again, that new book is Paul, A New Covenant Jew, Rethinking Pauline Theology, available on Erdman's, erdmans.com. Yeah, thank you. Real briefly, Dr. Barber, you've got another book out as well that covers some of the same ground uh, from a less academic perspective, more of a popular book. Right. And it's called Salvation, What Every Catholic Should Know, available through the Augustine Institute, augustineinstitute.org. What we're doing there is, is, is focusing not just on Paul, but on salvation in a broader sense. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, this is, it, it flows out of the Paul book because a lot of the issues that are debated in terms of Pauline studies hinges upon soteriology, right? What does it mean to be saved? I remember when I was a teenager, I was on a family vacation, and somebody in a hotel asked me, are you saved? Or actually, have you been saved? Or something like that. And uh, I remember being like a deer caught in the headlights. <laughs> what do you mean, have I been saved? I mean, getting saved is not going to hell and going to heaven. So it hasn't happened yet. You know? <laughs> but when you, when you look at the New Testament, the New Testament talks about salvation as a future reality, but also something that very much pertains to the here and now. Right. Baptism now saves you, right. we read in First Peter. And there are lots of other passages to be mentioned here. And uh, to me, this is the heart of the gospel, right? What does it mean to call Jesus Jesus? Why is he given the name Yeshua? His name means God saves, the Lord saves. The reason he's called Jesus is because he will save his people from their sins, Matthew tells us. And yet, as important as salvation is to who Jesus is and to his mission, we Catholics, we don't talk about salvation. If you go to Mass on Sunday— we say that the entire reason Jesus came down from heaven was for us men and for our salvation, right. right? That's why he was born. That's why he died. That's why he rose again for our salvation. But if you were to go right out of mass into the parish hall for the eighth sacrament of coffee and donuts, <laughs> right? and you found somebody in the hall talking about how he's been saved and how Jesus is his personal Lord and Savior, you'd probably say, that person's not a Catholic. He's just visiting the parish because Catholics <laughs> never talk about being saved. I think it's a major oversight. Salvation isn't just about getting out of hell. Right. It's about becoming like Christ. Romans 8, 29. He says that the goal of salvation history is that we become conformed to the image of God's Son. We become like Christ by being united to Him. We've been talking today with Dr. Michael Barber, Associate Professor of Theology and Scripture at the Augustine Institute in Denver, Colorado. When we come back, we're going to hear a reading out of the book of Thessalonians by Paul and a reading about Paul by St. Gregory of Nyssa, Don't go anywhere. There's much more to come right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. We've been talking today with Dr. Michael Barber of the Augustine Institute about his new book he wrote with a couple of co-authors called Paul, a New Covenant Jew, Rethinking Pauline Theology. It's available on Urbman's Press, and it's a fantastic and wide-ranging discussion. If you missed any part of the show or you want to share it with someone else, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over online at OutsideTheWalls.com. And if you just can't get enough and you want to go deeper, well, there's always more to my conversation than we have time to put up here on the air. And that's available to all of those who support the show through Patreon. If you go over while you're there looking at the archives at OutsideTheWalls.com, up in the top right-hand corner, there's a link and it says support the show hyphen Patreon. Uh, If you join that for as little as $5 a month, we will give you extra content each and every week. Uh, and this week is no exception. It's a, a fantastic discussion. We we uh, explored a little bit more deeply all of these questions about the interpretation of Scripture and who it is that Paul is. And we're going to continue down that road with that question here in this segment as we look at a reading from Paul out of the book of Thessalonians. And we look at a, uh, a writing about Paul from St. Gregory of Nyssa. But I have to tell you, Dr. Barber threw me a little bit for a loop because as he closed us off in that last segment, talking about what it is that salvation is, and not merely getting out of hell, but of being conformed into the image of Christ and and being unified with him. Um, man, I just, I just want to do this other reading from St. John Eudes uh, about living in union with Christ and Gosh, it fits so perfectly, uh, but I'm not going to do it. We're going to stick with Paul, and what I want you to do, uh, if you have the breviary, if you have your own copy of the breviary, or you do it online uh, with either um, the divineoffice.org or um, with the iBreviary app, is to go to the the August 19th for the feast day of St. John Eudes in the, in the Office of Readings. Uh, he has this just beautiful treatise on on what that is, on what uh, Dr. Barber was talking about in salvation, of being united uh, in Christ and living a life in Christ and and how we live out that salvation in that way. Again, that's that's from the Feast of St. John Eudes uh, on August 19th in your breviary. Uh, I'm going to give you the homework. Uh, maybe if I, if, if I remember to do this later, maybe I'll put it up on our social media as well and give you a link straight to that reading. Uh, but it's well worth your time. So for now, let's go ahead and continue on the trajectory we were already on, uh, and let's turn to our reading from Scripture and from church history. Our reading from uh, from Scripture comes from the book of 1 Thessalonians, right there at the very beginning as he opens the book, and he says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ grace to you, and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, remembering you in our prayers, unceasingly calling to mind your work of faith and labor of love and endurance in hope of our Lord Jesus Christ before our God and Father, knowing, brothers and sisters, loved by God, how you were chosen. For our gospel did not come to you in word alone, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with much conviction. You know what sort of people we were among you 
for your sake. In every place your faith in God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves openly declare about us what sort of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to await his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the coming wrath. That reading comes from the book of First Thessalonians, and one of the things that I'm struck by here that kind of falls in line with our discussion is this. He says, you know what sort of people we were among you for your sake. And he says this as if to say who we were among you should make sense of our words, right? Uh, and, and he means this, I think, primarily to say, you know, we weren't tricksters. You know, we weren't manipulative. We, you know, we weren't pulling the wool over your eyes. But I think that there's something important in this, that who a person is affects the way we treat their words. And this is why scholarship is so important, why it is important that we who become more and more removed by time and by culture take the time to really invest and investigate uh, in who it is that's writing to us, right? It was no big deal for the church fathers to, um, to write about Scripture and to give us commentaries about Scripture because they were coming from a culture that was nearly identical, if not identical, to the writers of Scripture, you and I, we're a little bit further uh, distance, not only from um, the Scripture writers, but also from the fathers. And so it takes some extra intention and some extra study to see what it is that their cultural context was, their understandings would be, so that we can get at not just what these words mean to us today, but what was the author's intention for these words? What was the audience's reception of these words and we can get at that uh, to a really pretty clear degree through taking the time to study. And thankfully, there are some fantastic scholars who have led the way, and we can, we can piggyback on them and read their work and come to understand uh, to a greater degree who these authors were and what implication that has for how we interpret the words uh, that they've left us. Our reading from church history today comes from St. Gregory of Nyssa as he talks with us about Paul. He says, No one has known Christ better than Paul, nor surpassed him in the careful example he gave of what anyone should be who bears Christ's name. So precisely did he mirror his master that he became his very image. By a painstaking imitation, he was transformed into his model, and it seemed to be no longer Paul who lived and spoke, but Christ himself. He shows his keen awareness of this grace when he refers to the Corinthians' desire for proof that Christ was speaking in him, as he says, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul teaches us the power of Christ's name when he calls him the power and wisdom of God, our peace, the unapproachable light where God dwells, our expiation and redemption, our great high priest, our paschal sacrifice, our propitiation. When he declares him to be the radiance of God's glory, 
the very pattern of his nature, the creator of all ages, our spiritual food and drink, the rock and the water, the bedrock of our faith, the cornerstone, the visible image of the invisible God. He goes on to speak of him as the mighty God, the head of his body, the church, the firstborn of the new creation, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, the firstborn of the dead, the eldest of many brothers. He tells us that Christ is the mediator between God and man, the only begotten Son crowned with glory and honor, the Lord of glory, the beginning of all things, the King of justice and peace, the King of the whole universe, ruling a realm that has no limits. Paul calls Christ by many other titles too numerous to recall here. Their cumulative force will give some conception of the marvelous content of the name Christ, revealing to us his inexpressible majesty insofar as our minds and thought can comprehend it. Since by the goodness of God, we who are called Christians have been granted the honor of sharing this name, the greatest, the highest, the most sublime of all names, it follows that each of the titles that express its meaning should be clearly reflected in us. If we are not to lie when we call ourselves Christians, we must bear witness to it by our way of living. That reading comes from St. Gregory of Nyssa, and it's how we as Christians should really be little Christs, which is what the title Christian means. And this, I think, is what what Dr. Barber was getting at in that salvation is not just fire insurance. It's not just get out of hell free card. Salvation is us being conformed into that image of Christ. And man, as you read through these titles of Christ and all of a sudden there's this realization that uh, we have some holiness to aspire to. We have some some um, direction for our lives other than, you know, get up and go to Mass and do the best we can. Uh, but to be really uh, the body of Christ, the, the and, and if you think about what the body of Christ is, it is the incarnation of God in the world. It's how God puts on flesh. And so you and I, as we are in Christ and Christ is in us, we ought to be a... a um, a little incarnation that Christ, as God broke into the world through Christ and through his work, that God might be able to continue to break into the world through Christ who lives in us, that we would be that incarnation today. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Today's show is brought to you by Marissa Alvarez Passos and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link, and join their numbers. Be a part of the ongoing conversation on social media, Facebook.com slash StepOutsideTheWalls. On Twitter, the handle's at OutsideTheWalls. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.